Hey everybody, I'm Brian Dunstan, joined once again by Keith Reedon with episode 11 of the Puck and Hoop podcast. Happy New Year, everybody. You know, there's so many stats out there that can impact how you see and perceive what's actually happening in any game. It doesn't matter whether it's puck or hoop. Stats can uh, always be reflected to say or show you what you want to see or what you don't want to see. But to me, the only thing that really matters is winning and losing. Now, how you win and how you lose, that's where stats can have an impact. They can shape your perception of losing and winning. But the bottom line is, when you're a professional athlete in puck or hoop, all you really care about is winning and losing. Those are the only stats that really matter in my world. And I like to think that that's the case for most people who watch the games we love to watch. To that end, watching what's happening in puck and hoop right now uh, is almost, it's kind of like, where are these games going? Like take basketball, for instance, scoring. It's just going through the roof. And then you look at hockey, scoring. It's going through the roof. So it makes you wonder, whatever happened to the other half of the game? Is defense a factor or a non-factor? And that's something we're going to take a look at as we dive into episode 11 of the Puck and Hoop podcast. So Keith, let me ask you a question right off the bat. Scoring in the NBA has gone through the roof. Why do you think that's happening? Well... For me, I'm taking a look in the happy 2023. Six guys at the 30 point per game mark or better in the NBA this season. I don't remember when last that's happened. Um, for me, as I watch, I mean, number one, the three point shot. Not only are your, you know, traditionally it was your smaller guys, your guards, and your Larry Bird types or Reggie Miller types that we're using the three-point shot as a weapon. But now you got seven-foot-plus Joel Embiid stepping out to the three-point line and shooting it, not just throwing it up, but shooting it with efficiency. So, you know, and dominating down low. And, of course, the third thing for me is stars in the NBA this is, not, uh, this is not anything that's changed. But stars in the NBA always get the calls. So I've heard actually even one watching Raptors broadcasts that they complain that, look, these and ones this year seem to be automatic. Whereas, you know, <laughs> whereas in the past, you know, you may, they, at least they feel you had to earn them. I, I don't know if I totally agree that you always had to earn them, but... I mean, definitely, uh, they are automatic this year, and I, and I think you know, you you add to the the point totals, and I, I I know stars are stars because they score, but then you look at the guys who are, who are scoring, or are they start or are they stars because are scorers stars, and the guys who are are scoring are are the big guys, uh, you know, who you expect to do it on on any on an every team, and then you throw in a guy mm-hmm. like. You throw in a guy like our guy, Shea, Gilgis Alexander of OKC. He's over 30 points a game, but he's on a team that is diminished, and they need him to score every single night. So for me, in the NBA, you see the stars, I mean, without even looking, you know, I wouldn't have to tell you, hey, Luca's up there, right? You know that. You see it on a nice yeah. basis. Joel Embiid, as I mentioned, is up there. Giannis is up there. You know, these guys you expect, Jason Tatum. I think part of the deal is, you know, their teams 
need these guys to score their higher usage than they were before. You don't have this isn't your 1980 Lakers where you have your first seven guys, you know, are capable of going off for 15 to 20 a night. You know, you you've got the stars at the top of the pyramid and that pyramid widens out and and lowers in point total very quickly. Yeah, but I think it goes even further than that, Keith. I mean, obviously the stars are going to do what stars do, and that's dominate the ball. They get uh, over 30% of the usage rate, the, the big players do on most teams. But to me, it's you take a look around the NBA, and I think there are more guys now averaging 20-plus points than any other point in NBA history. That's one thing. So why is that? I think, obviously, the three-point ball is a factor. And it's not just that it's being utilized more and more as the NBA continues to move forward, but the fact that it's spread the court so much that now it's so much easier to get to the basket because of the rule changes, which allow, you know, unimpeded progress by any offensive player. You can't even touch an offensive player now if you're a defensive player. Plus there are way more driving lanes because the big guys, as you just noted, are out there beyond the three point line taking bombs. Also, the talent level in the NBA right now is unbelievable. It's just one of the things that the NBA seems to have right now is that more and more the players coming into the league are ready to play and ready to play at a very high level. So you're seeing not just the superstar scores who are averaging you know almost 30 points and plus 30 points, but there are guys coming off the bench at the bottom of the lineup who are more than capable of throwing in 20 points per game on any given night. So that depth of talent that the NBA now has certainly is, is, is a factor in terms of how the scoring is going. And also the NBA itself is culpable here, if you want to use that phrase, because the rule changes they put into place in the last half decade or so have definitely leaned toward the, size of, the side of the offense. So the fact that scoring is high, the fact that you know the uh, players are scoring at a higher rate, um, the league wants that. In any sport, everyone wants more offense. And uh, defenses are, are having a tough time trying to catch up. Yeah, I mean, six guys over, at or over the 30-point-per-game mark in the NBA. I don't remember when I've seen that. I know it happened probably in the 60s and the 70s. But, you know, we were wondering why it's, it's happening and one of the things I think is that, you know, the, obviously the three-point line. Right now, you've got a guy, a seven-footer like Joel Embiid, who's shooting, you know, 34%. He's very efficient from the three-point line. He's dominating down low as a big man. There aren't as many big men uh, who can match up with him physically um, as there used to be in the past. And, you know, one of the things, too, that I'm thinking is the lack of of the, you know, I really came up to the game in the 80s and the 90s and the physical nature of the battles. You know, remember those uh, 85, 83-point games, right, where every time you went to the hole, you know, you expected to get hit. The games could be described, you know, as a war, in air quotes. And I think right now everything is done to protect the stars of the game from getting into physical battles and uh you know the guys are better shooters again i think the shooting is caught up to the 80s when the three-point line was what three feet further back 
Um, mm -hmm. So I think the shooting has now caught up to that. As you can see, you see a guy like Trey Young. This guy's not shooting from 20 feet nine. He's shooting from 27 feet out. If he's open, he's going to shoot from 27 feet out. And he's efficient at shooting from 27 feet out. So, I mean, you know, those, those kind of things for me. Like, what, what are your thoughts on the scoring? Well, you touched on a few things here that I'd like to talk about. And let's start with the three-point ball and the fact that there's a couple of things that go into what the three-point shooting has done in the NBA. Uh, one, obviously, um, people are taking it more often, so that's going to lead to an increase in scoring. But with the prevalence of the three-point shot in today's game, it makes for much more space on the court. So while you're seeing a lot of three-point shooting, your cor the correlation there is you're going to get more lanes to drive to the hoop, more areas to get to in the mid-range. So while initially the two-point basket went down, it's now starting to shoot way back up because there's more room inside the two-point area because of so much shooting and so much attention being paid by defenses to the three-point line. So you're getting scoring at all levels now, and there are players now who are able to take advantage of that in terms of being able to score at all three levels, at the hoop, in the mid-range, and at the three-point line. So that's the second factor I'd like to talk about, the type of players we're seeing come into the NBA. You talk about the stars, you know, pouring in at or around the 30-point range. Well, there is such a huge depth of good basketball talent now in the NBA that, they're quite frankly, Keith, anybody coming off the bench is capable of putting in 20 points a game. You see that around the league. And it's, it's amazing to me that the, the way that these guys coming into the league nowadays are so ready to challenge offensively any defense thrown at them. Um, it's not like in the old days where guys had to work their way into the league. Now when you come off the bench, for the most part, the talent level allows these guys to have success offensively, which leads me to the third factor, and that's defense. What we're seeing with defenses now, I think, and if you just watch the game and, and take a critical eye at it, is there's so much attention being paid to the three-point shot by defenses, they're leaving themselves open for so much other activity. And that's why the bigger 6'8", 6'9", wing players are having such success. Look at the guys at the top of the scoring heap, and they're all, most, for the most part, they're the wing-type guys who are multi-positional players. They can do it all on the court. And that is because they're able to take advantage of that defense, having to scramble out the three-point line, trying to shut down the three-point line. Because if they don't, they're going to give up a three-point ball. And nobody seems to want to do that these days. And that leads to an increase in personal scoring and an increase in team scoring, which is what we're seeing heavily reflected in today's game. Now, i, I got to ask you, though, do you think the NBA wants this? I mean, I don't think there's any professional league in sport that doesn't want to see an increase in offense. But to the extent where it's going right now, i got to wonder if, it, if it's really good for the game overall. I think the NBA wants it. I mean, I think they want to see great plays. I think they want to see great scoring performances. It brings more eyes to the game. You know, Donovan Mitchell scoring 71 points. And Donovan Mitchell's a great player, but he's not a mm -hmm. household name. But he, you know, he is now. So Yeah, can I, can I jump in here for a second? Sure. I'm going to call, I'm going to put an asterisk on Donovan Mitchell's 71-point outburst, man, because he did not deserve that 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 missed call he got that because he tied the game 
just before the buzzer went off against the cat against the the bulls and uh he broke the plane of the foul line before his foul shot hit the rim that's a violation the game should have been over he would have been done at 58 points a nice a nice scoring output, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna but say he certainly wouldn't points. have got 71 so i'm going to put an asterisk on donovan mitchell's great game but not an, a 70 pointer he didn't deserve that yeah well that's a blown I, call by the officials man. i i don't i don't I don't think it deserves deserves an asterisk because, as a guy who watched the eighty one point uh, Kobe Bryant game against in regulation, by the way, in regulation against the Raptors, there were some asterisk plays in that game as well. I think you can go to almost any great scoring performance and find maybe not as egregious as the Donovan Mitchell one, but you're going to find those types of plays when a guy's got a great game going and everything is going, you know, but. As I was saying before, yeah, but I Keith, think... come on, man. That Kobe Bryant 81, that was got in the course of the game. There were no flagrant violations or blown calls by the officials. There was some pretty shoddy defense played by the then Raptors. But that Mitchell game, I don't care what you say, man. The rule is the rule, and he violated the rule. He should have 56 points, not 71. The Bulls should have won that game. I don't think that I think you're comparing apples to oranges. No, I'm not because the NBA is set up for scoring one. The NBA is a is a is a league of rules being bent. I won't say broken. (laughs) Officials miss calls all. Well, that was a broken rule. That's what I mean. He broke the rule. But he broke that rule. Officials miss calls. Yeah, you're right. You know, it just just bugs me because I don't want to get on a tangent about NBA officiating or officiating in general, because I think that's something that is an easy target in today's sports, because I really do believe that nobody has a harder job in sport than any official, be it on the ice or on the field of play in football, basketball, baseball. Officials are at a disadvantage because the games and the athletes themselves are so much bigger, faster, stronger, better. It's so hard to keep up. That being said, <laughs> officials got to pick up their game, man, because you can't have calls or missed calls that impact the outcome of a game. Okay, but Just let's 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 opinion. go. Let's circle back here to the scoring. And the question yes. was, does the NBA want this? And my answer to that is one hundred percent. Look at the uh, the game the other uh, last week when Luca went off. Man, that yeah. game was you know that. That's, that game hits social media. Uh, people that I know that don't even watch the NBA, but do know the name Luka Doncic, um, were talking about it. So, I mean, any sort of extra eyes, not the hardcore fans, but to get your game out there buzzing in social media, yeah, 100%, that's what the league wants. You touched on this, the wing players and I would even point out to you that seven foot Giannis, seven foot Joel Embiid, seven foot Kevin Durant, Kevin Durant, they are wing players in just larger bodies. They play no the game like wing players. Um, they space the game like wing players. And then every once in a while, they can go down, go down low and abuse guys who aren't as physically gifted as them. Um, we who's the one player I wanted to mention? He's just under tw- uh, thirty points. He's at twenty nine point one points a game. 
And we're not even talking about him in these scoring barrages, even though he, what did he have uh, last week? Like three 40 point games in a row? LeBron James at oh, 38 years old. 38 years old. He's averaging over 29 points a game. That's ridiculous, man. And he's shooting over 51%, Brian. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, he's in a whole different category. Uh, let me tell you something. There, there are LeBron haters and there are LeBron super haters. I'm not in that, in that category. I will say this about LeBron James. I am saddened to see him wasting his talents with a team <laughs> as abysmal as the Los Angeles Lakers. This is no way to end what's probably going to go down as the greatest career, not just in basketball, but in the history of professional sports. And I think if you look back over the course of the almost 20 years this guy's been in professional sport, when you sum it up, there's never going to be a career like it. What he's done and the level he's maintained from the beginning to the almost end of his career is unprecedented. And I think that one factor, the greatness and the level he's played at for his entire career, is what's going to really push the GOAT conversation, the legitimate GOAT conversation, um, to the forefront when, once this man retires. And it doesn't matter about championships when you're this good for this long. And that's what LeBron James is, is showing. He's, he bends the game to his will, and he's done that ever since he came into the NBA. So to watch what he's doing at the age of 38, it's hard to be impressed by this guy at this stage, but man, he's impressive. Oh, yeah. It's, an, it's incredible. I saw this uh, stat the other day on a NBA broadcast. At the age of 38, uh, the highest scoring average uh, for a player of that age is obviously it's LeBron at 29. The next highest was Kobe at 17.5. And then it just plummets right off, like not mm -hmm. even in double digits. Like this is incredible. And to do it efficiently that's that's crazy he's shooting over 50 percent you got kevin durant right now shooting 56 percent that's another reason like look at the efficiency of these guys i don't care how many shots yeah. they're taking i don't care that they're taking three point shots but the fact that they're you know the fact that they're shooting such a high percentage Embiid is over 50 Giannis is over 50 uh one of your personal favorites before he got uh, injured uh, again, Zion Williamson is shooting over 60%. Yeah. You know, it's this, just it's unbelievable what's going on right now. And, in the and, NBA. and you're, you're right. I, I, I don't believe that defense has taken that much of a step back, but Hey, look, you know, you know, what get, gets rewarded in the NBA. And I think mm -hmm. that players coming in, see that scoring gets rewarded, uh, uh, you know, financially, Gets you the shoe deal outside of uh, outside of the league, which is another finance. You know, you make all star teams. You know what I mean? There's there's very few there's very few few players that make the all star team uh, based on their defense. You know, there's very few. I mean, yeah, I, I think you can count them on one hand, really. Yeah, yeah. Now, just just Maybe just, just to wrap things up, just to wrap things up on the scoring and the NBA. Um, I think that. Uh, this is the regular season. And we all know that in every sport, the playoffs are a different beast. But I'm really wondering if that's going to be the case 
this year and in years to come in the NBA. If we're going to see the defenses and the half-court game become as dominant in the playoffs as they usually are at that time of year, based on just how incredible uh, the offensive output of players and teams has been through the regular season. I want to hear your thoughts on that, and then we'll wrap up our look at the NBA, and then we'll move on to something interesting in hockey. Well, traditionally, again, the stars, real stars, their output increases in the playoffs. Absolutely. So I would expect that these guys, the guys that we're mentioning, uh, other than LeBron, um, most of them are playoff teams in playoff position. So yeah, I, I fully expect the scoring to continue. I do understand that defense also traditionally, um, traditionally, uh, you know, gets better. You're playing better teams. Uh, the games are tighter. Um, there's more on the line. There's more pressure. And defense usually gets better as well in the playoffs the further you go along. But these great performances, Brian, by the stars, mm -hmm. I expect them to continue. I, I think we may see some 60-point uh, playoff games, 60-point games scored in the playoffs. You know, I, would you be shocked if Lucas scored 60 in a playoff game? Hell no. Absolutely not. No. There you go. No. So, you know? another thing that's fascinating, and this is where we turn our attention to pot, and it's just, it pains me to say this, because they are not amongst my favorite sporting franchises in all of sport. What's going on with the Boston Blues? As we speak, they have yet to lose a game in regulation on home ice. They have a record of 31-4-4. They are on pace for 139-plus points, which would shatter the record in the NHL for most points in a season. Where is this coming from? How did this happen? Who saw this coming? What in the world is going on with the Boston Bruins? I, I just can't believe this. You know, it's, it's crazy. Like, could a coaching change mean that much to a franchise? I, I was reading an article on the Bruins, and yeah. Bruins beat writers to the man uh, before this season had them maybe at seven, maybe at mm -hmm. eighth place. And these are the guys that are as familiar with the team as anybody else in the workings of the team. Um, yeah, they've gone, they've had stars injured. <laughs> you know what I mean? They've had, yeah. so it's, it, it's incredible. Um, you know, they're, they're like, their goal difference is, is ridiculous. Like it's, it's double anybody else's in the, as it should be with their record, but on home mm -hmm. ice, they're just unbelievable. And my question is, I, I know you followed hockey and you have been following hockey a lot more closer than I have, but Linus Olmark, who the heck is this guy? Like he's, who he's saw that happening? Un, he's unbeatable. <laughs> this guy is almost unbeatable. You know, and you've, you've got a lot of guys at the bottom. I don't, you know, I really don't like the top half and bottom half of your lineup, but you got a lot mm -hmm. of guys on the bottom half of their lineup who are having career years and who are also coming up big when needed in big situations it's and you know of course you got that patrice bergeron marching on marchand coming back early from injury and he's over a point per game player you know what i mean so so when they didn't expect the guy to be they expected him back originally in january he came back yeah. early and he's you know he's over a point per game player at the moment you know so um, yeah, the Bruins are shocking, 
And as you might dislike the Bruins as a Leafs fan, but as a Canadiens fan, I really dislike the Bruins. And I, I, I don't want them to, as you said, shatter that season, uh, the best season mm-hmm. ever record, because it's held by the 76-77 Canadians, right? So yeah. with eight losses. But I, I couldn't, you know, if you told me 39 games in, the Bruins would only have four regulation losses. I, I, I would never have believed that. You got to look at what the New Jersey Devils have done this season, what the Carolina Hurricane are doing this season, what the Toronto Maple Leafs are doing this season, and Tampa once again doing it the way they always do. Yep. It. They're all having not good seasons, great seasons, and they've been rendered inconsequential by the unbelievable season the Boston Bruins have fashioned to this point. We're at the midway point of the season just about where you know most teams are approaching or are at or have just surpassed the 40-game sure. mark. And it looks to me like Boston yep. is home and cooled out. There's no way anyone's going to catch them for first place in the Eastern Conference, let alone the entirety of the NHL. And I, I got to tell you, Keith, it just makes that, that question once again raise its ugly head. The playoff format in the NHL needs to be changed. You've got, <laughs> what, four of the top six teams in the NHL in one division. It is ridiculous that they have to play each other in the first round of the playoffs. Now, I know the playoffs are supposed to be tough, but shouldn't there be some reward for finishing near the top of the standings rather than having to play a team just as good, if not better, than yourself? Can you imagine if, uh, at this point, I guess Boston, if the, if, if the playoffs started right now, Boston would play the New York Islanders. Could you imagine if the New York Islanders... You know, uh, as we already know, like, if their goalie got uh, – uh, what's their goalie's name again? Russian kid? It's not um, Varlamov. It's um... – No. Uh, let's – let me just quickly look him up. Uh, Sorokin. Sorokin, and, uh, of course. But Varlamov is there too, but Sorokin is really yeah. the guy, right? So Yeah, he's the you, starter. Can you imagine if Sorokin got hot, like crazy hot, which he's done at points this season I know, during the first happen. round. of and, and they knocked out – I know you, as a Leaf fan, you guys, oh, we got to play town. But can you imagine if they knocked out the Bruins? Um, I mean, that's what would happen anyways, because traditionally it would be one versus eight. So that's why, for me, the playoff format is the playoff format. Um, I think it's I, – I, I know a lot of Leaf fans don't like it. I don't mind it. I think it really builds up rivalries. And, you know, remember our, our era of bad blood <laughs> – in the playoffs, I think that I think it helps to build up the bad blood in the playoffs. I really do. I really do. Yeah, I, I I do, but I think that it's not just Leaf fans who dislike this format, but the Lightning fans have to think it's a little bit unfair. And similarly, anyone who, look, it doesn't matter who finishes second, third, or fourth in the Eastern Conference right now, because they're going to have to play a good to a great team. And uh, to me, it doesn't matter whether you're a Toronto fan, a Leaf fan, a Jersey fan, a Carolina fan. you got to look at this and think, what's the reward for finishing at at or near the top of your division? What's the reward for fashioning a great season if you have to play against a hard team? Now, the road through the playoffs should never be easy, but I I keep coming back to the fact that you play for seeding in the NHL. And, and seeding means you want to play against a team generally considered to be a little bit lesser than yourself. That's not happening in the NHL anymore. And to me, that's a factor in, in uh, impacting 
I don't know, the the desire to watch the playoffs in the way that most fans want to. They want to see their team succeed. But it's hard to have that success when you're playing against great teams right off the bat. Oh, definitely. I mean, hey, if the as we said, you know, playoffs ending right now, and the Leafs are playing the Lightning again. And the Which Lightning... would be an awesome series, but boy, Tampa fans and Toronto fans are going to be... Somebody's going to be crying. Someone's going to be crying early. You know, they're going to be saying, oh, we had such a great season, and then we have to jump in and play against, you know, a, a Stanley Cup contender and off the bat? How fair is that? And I know that nothing is fair and nothing is given in professional sports, but there's got to be a more... I don't want to call it an equitable situation because it's not about equity. It's about outcome in the NHL. But there's got to be a better system than what we currently have well, now. Well, under, under the old system, which we had for years and years, if the playoffs ended right now, Brian, do you know who the Toronto Leafs would be playing? Toronto will be playing New York, the Islanders, or the Rangers, sorry. Nope. Toronto, who? under the old system, Toronto would be playing Washington. Who's been oh. red hot okay. over the yeah. Washington Capitals have been red hot over the last month, and they're getting Tom Wilson back, who hasn't been playing. Yeah. Um, you know, so. But uh, honestly, Keith, even at their best, who would you rather play? Boston, Tampa, Carolina, or Washington? Out of those four. Oh yeah, yeah. I would no, choose no. Washington every day. Uh, yeah, no, no doubt. But you know, Nick Backstrom, coming back. Mm-hmm. Tom Wilson, who is a physical presence, man, like it's a physical presence. I love the way that guy plays. He's yeah. coming back. Remember, Washington has Washington has been red hot the last month, and they've done yeah. it without yeah. they've done it without these guys. So my question is, the I, you're saying, and I'm not saying that the system is perfect the way it is now, but under the old system, the Leafs are not having. There's no cakewalk here for the Leafs. You know, and yeah, of course, I would rather play, you know, if I was a Leaf fan, I would rather have them play Tampa, uh, sorry, Washington than Tampa. But I mean, Washington actually, although they've got, you know, Tampa's got four games in hand on Washington, Washington actually has more points (laughs) than Tampa right now. So, I mean, with a depleted lineup. So, I mean, there's no cakewalk. I think you play the system that you have. The NHL playoffs have always been, you know, along with, we don't talk it on this podcast very much, but for me, Major League Baseball and the NHL playoffs is where you see play really get elevated during the postseason. And this is something for the Leafs. Hey, this is what you have. You've got to elevate your play, man. If you want to, you got to, you're going to have to beat Tampa at some point. You're going to have to beat Boston at some point. Unfortunately, you might, you may have to do that in the first round of the playoffs. Yep, and that goes for everybody. But right now, the Boston Bruins are the standard bearer. It looks like that's going to be the way for the entirety of the season. All right, that's our look at news and notes, which was really more like observations and fascinations this time around. Up next, we're going to take a deep dive into what's going on with the Toronto Maple Leafs as the new year is upon us. All right, we're on to the Toronto Maple Leafs, who came into the new year looking for their first win of the 2023, and they got it. So they're back on the beam, and a large portion of why the Maple Leafs have had success to this point in the season uh, is because of their reapplication of sound defensive principles. Um, in previous seasons, they've shown it here and there, but this season it's been one of the most consistent facets of their game which is a good thing because, once again, that goalie bugaboo has raised its head. 
The Leafs have had uh, subpar goaltending since around, I don't know, the middle of December, and that's caused them to drop to about a 500 record over their last 10 games. However, in that same period, their defensive metrics are still pretty darn good, if not at the top of the league. So I ask you, Keith, is that bugaboo that people talked about coming into the season going to be a problem for the Leafs going forward? The goaltending, because of the uncertain nature of Matt Murray and Ilya Samsonov over the long haul? Um, and I'm going to say no. Um, we know both players, you know, suffered from injury. Um, overall this season, if you just look at Matt Murray and Samsonov, um, their records are, I think, better than, you know, 12-3-1 and one for Matt, for Ilya Samsonov. Matt Murray, 9-4-2. I think you would have been really happy with that record uh, coming in. Yeah, uh, do, do you guys have little lulls? Yeah, everybody, everybody in the NHL has little lulls at some point, and we know why, because guys get nicked. Guys get hurt, and, you know, if you're not injured, you're going to play through it. But the save percentage as a team is up from last year. The goals against as a team is up from last year. Or sorry, I should say down from last year, right? Yeah. And the reason why... But they're why, up in the standings, I but get they're up, Exactly. But the reason yeah. why, as you've said, is it's not just... Well, save percentage, obviously, is you know mostly attributed to the goalies. But I would argue that they're seeing less chances than they were. You know, just because yeah. you're getting a shot on that doesn't mean it's a great chance. So um, as a team, I think the Leafs' defensive injuries have really given them something during this season, the regular season, to rally around. I really mm -hmm. believe it. You know, you're plugging in guys from the Marlies, you know, the, the third defenseman on the Marlies is on your team. And I think it really is. So, I mean, uh, Samsonov is almost automatic at home. What's he, 10-0-1 at home? Yeah, I think he lost his, his last game there, and then he, he bounced back again. So he's, he's yeah. got a pretty seriously good record uh, yeah. on home ice. And, and, and you know, as a team, when you go out there and you're on home ice and he's in the cage, your confidence level, you know, just has to be up there. I, I, they, they played a, a yes, uh, last game as an example they allowed, I think they, as a team, uh, they allowed only 23 shots. I mean, yeah, you, you know what I'm saying? You're, you're going to have that confidence, um, you know, back there, one goal. Um, so, no, I don't expect this to be, in fact, I expect them going forward, if they remain healthy, I, res, I expect that uh, duo to actually get better. I always think, you know, you, your January for me is what you really are. So let's see what they are in January. Mm, no doubt about that. One of the other factors for this Leafs as they've uh, gone through a pretty good stretch since uh, October, turned into November, is uh, the, the depth developments. They're finally getting production from lines not uh, in their top two, not manned by their top two uh, forwards. So depth has become a factor for the Leafs in a positive way, whereas some people were questioning that depth. When you're getting scoring from the third line and, and solid play from your fourth line, thanks in large part to Pontus Holmberg, who we should talk about, um, 
that's something that the Leafs haven't had in previous season. That should be something that holds them in good stead as they progress towards the playoffs. You know what? It, it, it's funny. It's not just that those, for me, it's not just those lines are scoring. It's that they're scoring on some nights when the top two lines are, are not bringing it offensively. And they're also scoring timely goals, you know? And you, when you go out there too, these guys go, come out, they're flying around, you know? They are flying around. They've changed the energy. And again, going forward, I don't want to be sounding everything, ah, everything's great for the Leafs. But going forward, I mean, I expect a guy like Yarncruck, 17 mm-hmm. points. Like, did you, you know, you, you'd be really happy if that was what you were going to get. And the other part about it is, remember, here's a guy that's got 17 points, but he's only playing 13 minutes a night, Brian. Yeah. That's the other thing. Like, we look at it and go, oh, yeah, well, he's on the ice, but he's playing 13 minutes a night. Miss Mitch Marner's playing 21 minutes a night. So... You know, you're getting production from guys in less time on the ice and you're from your third and fourth line in air quotes of game, uh, your bottom half, and they're producing like per minute on the ice. I'm not an advanced stats guy, but per minute on the <laughs> ice, these guys are really, really holding up their end. And uh, no you, you watch a team that. more than me. Like you, you tell me what you expect from these guys going forward. Well, because of the fact that the the third and fourth line are doing the job that Sheldon Keefe expects of them, and also that the top two lines are playing fairly well. Um, But I think you put that all together, the way that they've accepted and embraced this um, all-encompassing defensive posture that the Leafs have thrown out on the ice on a regular basis, because the goalies have hit a bit of a speed bump and seem to have come out of that, I think that there's another level for the Leafs to get through as they progress towards the playoffs. And I think that's one of the things that Sheldon Keefe has learned in his time behind the bench is that there's a build you have to go through throughout the regular season to have real success in the playoffs, to get out of that first round and a challenge for the cup. You have to have an ability to not get too down when you do have stumbles throughout the regular season and not to get too high when you're having ultimate success. And in that stretch where the Leafs were going great guns through November and into the early part of December, you never got the impression that Keith, Keith, you're Keith, he's Keith, (laughs) that Keith was overwhelmed by the success that the Leafs were having. Similarly, he doesn't get too down when they hit a bit of a speed bump, back-to-back losses on home ice in games where they weren't that um, efficient defensively. The guy knows, I I really believe this now, he's pushing the right buttons and he sees that this team as currently constructed because there may be some changes coming because the trade deadline is looming out there in a couple of months. But this team as currently constructed, they have another level to get to. And that is definitely a positive um, outcome for this team because one of the things I think with the Leafs, you've seen them sometimes coast on their talent. They're not doing that anymore. They're a hard-working team. And when you're a hard-working team, with the extreme talent that the Leafs have, uh, I think that bodes well for a pretty solid regular season and hopefully deep success in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, hey, look, they're, uh, you know, again, they're on about a 111-point pace. They had 115 last year. If I told you you were going to have all these injuries to the the defensive core and you're still going to end up with 111 points, I mean, that's a projection. you would have been. Would you not have been happy if you're a Leaf fan? 
Absolutely. Who wouldn't be? You know, I mean, the, the playoff situation is the playoffs. I like the fact that, you know, these guys, they know who they're going to have to play in the playoffs. And you said... A pretty darn good team. Well, but <laughs> you said sure. you like how hard they are playing. And I think that they're developing that hard culture right now. Yeah. You know, it's not all flash and dash and it's not all just gunning. Um, you know, they're not, you know, they're, they've got four guys, I believe, no, or sorry, three, three players above a point a game play, pace in William Nylander, uh, Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews who are above a point a game pace. But, mm-hmm. you know, and it's Tavares all, is right there. He's right there. He's like maybe under by a point or two. Um, yeah. But it's not all flash and dash and they are playing tough hockey, which is what, right? They've always been mm-hmm. accused of not being able to do within the playoffs. So uh, I think if they can keep this culture, you're going to lose games unless you're Boston. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're going <laughs> to lose games, right? Yeah. You know, they, they've only got nine uh, regular uh, you know, nine losses, uh, not OTLs. But so the way I look at it is this Leaf team with everything that's happened and they battled through, uh, I think they're in great position for the second half. But I, again, January will tell me what they are. Yeah, definitely something to look forward to as the season continues because I, I'm very interested to see just if they can get to another level and what that's going to look like for this team going forward. Well, that's our look at the Leafs, Keith, and now we're going to transition to uh, your favorite team, the Montreal Canadiens. Let's talk about God's team in the NHL. Um, <laughs> I, I'm glad you said that with a smile because we know that's just not true. <laughs> but anyway, whatever. Yeah, the Habs have um, they've struggled of late, but you know we kind of expected that given the youth of this team and the injuries they've run into. But um, they've they've pulled out of it a little bit, it seems like. So anything unexpected with this team right now, Keith? You know what? I love your optimism when it comes to the Canadians. They've struggled as of late. <laughs> Seven straight losses, man. They, went... they won. They won against the Blues, so that kind of puts the arrow pointing up. Yeah, they went one and six on the road, and seven straight. Lo- and Brian, they were mm. getting waxed. I know <laughs> during these like tough. seven to two to Florida, nine to two to Washington. I turned it yeah. off and wept afterwards. <laughs> nine to two against Washington. And, you know, it's almost, you know what's funny about the Canadians to me? It's almost like, you know, from going back, way back when with the, you know, yeah. pulling up Patrick Waugh and embarrassing him. It's almost like, it's like, come on, man. There's, they're at their seventh goal. Pull the goalkeeper. It's almost <laughs> like a thing in Montreal that they refuse to do nowadays, you know? But, yeah, yeah they hit hard times, man. Like, I was, I, I was actually, you know, as I like to do, adding up. You know, oh, what was the goal differential during that losing streak? And it was ugly. I stopped because, you know, they they really, I mean, they, they lost an OT loss uh, against Colorado, which is a game, which they could have won in OT. Yeah, um, for sure. But but then after that, the games were, were not close. They weren't competitive. Um, you know, they did win. We're, ta- we're recording this on a Sunday. They won last night uh, against St. Louis. They had to come back to do it. And the interesting thing in that game 
is <clears throat> out of the five goals they scored, mm-hmm. four goals were scored off of a hard forecheck, turning over pucks yep. and getting the pucks right in front of the net. These weren't, uh, you know, the um, uh, Kirby Doc scored on a power play goal, which was nice to see. But these were hard plays, you know, hard plays in front of the net, which is what I think that they had gotten away from doing uh, during their losing streak, making those hard plays. Um, are they what they thought we were? Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're, you know. They're, they're young and they're prone to mistakes. Yeah, they're, they're young, they're prone to mistakes. Um, you know, they're in the bottom, you know, what are they? In, you know, fifth, sixth from the, unbelievably, their sixth worst record in the NHL. I mean, you know, they're going to get a lottery pick. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're probably going to, you know, sell off some players. And they are in a rebuilding. But, you know, when I'm watching this, um, watching them play lately, what's surprising to me is, you know, I, I was I'm still, I'm really high on the defense. The young defensemen don't get me. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm not, but I'm now seeing mistakes that these guys weren't making during the first 15, 20 games of yeah. the season. They're beginning to look like really young defensemen. You know, soft plays. When, when, and I don't mean, you know, uh, go through, but I'm talking soft clearing plays, you know? Hey, just let's throw it through the middle when I'm already at the boards and I can just clear it up the boards. And then that resulting in a goal <laughs> directly, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think they, you know, again, remember too, a lot of these guys are, you know, some of the, you know, uh, Gooley, Jack, these guys were playing junior hockey last year. They may be hitting a wall right now oh for sure i think that that is a big factor keith you know when you're at this stage of development as a young hockey player um this time of year in particular i think it's it's tough when the calendar turns because you've played a lot of hockey to this point there aren't a lot of breaks it's every second night on average the body starts to feel it and they haven't built up that that man strength that a lot of the veteran guys have. So they're feeling it physically, and more importantly, they're starting to feel it mentally. So I think that the fact that the the Canadians have struggled as of late, well, more than as of late, is is something that was bound to happen, given the, the overall youth on this team. At the same time, as much as we think they are who we thought they are and who they're going to be, is it so bad for them to be lottery-bound at this point? All things considered? Yeah, no. Um, no. And, and uh, you know, I expected them to be lottery-bound. And the trajectory that they're going, they may find themselves, you know, with a, with a really good chance to be in maybe the bottom three um, if they continue the way they have over the last, say, 15 games. Uh, and no, it's not, it's not bad because you win in this league with talent, right? Mm-hmm. You win with stars um you know only teams like uh, you know either by acquiring them uh you know or drafting and building and i think the the cohort that they have especially um for me Caden gooley is a star is going to be a star nhl defenseman no question he matches up they they purposely try to match him up every night with the other team's best players and he does a pretty good job as a 20, almost 21-year-old. He's going to be a star defenseman. You know that by the time he matures into, you know, 22, 23, 
you want to have some 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 real talent and if you just look at what you know talent can do look at the new jersey devils you know look at the new jersey devils i mean a player like jack hughes who i was like oh man this guy's 160 pounds soaking wet <laughs> right drafted yeah. n- drafted number one overall right uh nico Hischer, uh coming into his own Drafted number one overall in 2017. Hughes, I believe, was Hughes, I believe, was 2019, right? Drafted mm-hmm. first overall. I mean, yeah. you need that kind of talent. I mean, the Canadians have Uri Slavkovsky. I mean, I'm not worried that he's got four goals. I mean, if if you were looking at Jack Hughes a couple of years ago, you'd have been like, in his first year, he was, you know. He was just like, you know, just barely, um, you know, making a dent. So I expect the Canadians uh, to, to get a pick, a high pick, and, and utilize it. Okay, well, well, I'm glad you went down that route, Keith, because that's the question I really want to talk about in terms of the Habs and their player development. Does a year like this hurt a prized rookie like Yuri Slavkovsky? Or in some ways, can it help accelerate his development into a, a full-fledged top-tier NHL player? Well, you know what? Um, with Slavkovsky, a little bit different being a European, right? You weren't going to send him to junior hockey. Um, mm-hmm. He is he's still he's getting his 12 minutes a night, um, every night. And the funny thing about him is, yeah, he's not scoring, but he doesn't look out of place, Brian. That's the interesting That's thing. That's key. That's yeah. key, right? Yeah, he, he's, he's got the speed. Uh, I think in the first dozen games um, that he played, it did look faster. But now he seems to have been caught up to the speed. And shocking, European rookie, he, he doesn't back down physically. He does not back down physically on a night-to-night basis. So I think for him, um, you know, the NHL, I think it's the right place to be. You know, they put him on the second power play unit, some. You know, so he's getting to play in situations. And what will be crazy is, you know, coming from European hockey, now – the back half of the season, if, if, if he can get to 10 goals, which is what I always hoped and envisioned for him, if he can get to 10 goals in the NHL, I think that's a real winning season for him personally. Mm. Well, the relative youth and obvious youth of the Montreal Canadiens is a deciding factor in how this season is going for them. But let's talk about, as we wrap up our, our look at the Canadiens, the veterans on this team, because the trade deadline, now that we've gone around the uh, horn with the new year and all that, is right up there in front of us. And um, there are some veterans on this team who could quite conceivably not only bring back a good price for the Montreal Canadiens, but help other teams that are playoff bound and looking to go deep. Um, Do you think that Montreal is going to be a big player come the trade deadline based on what's happening with the team right now? If, Montreal can get picks. Remember their stated goal. They, they want to have three. They would love, well, I mean, almost anybody, but they would love to have three first-round draft picks in this upcoming draft. If they can get picks, the way their players are playing right now, I don't think, I can't see a first-rounder coming back for what they have to offer, to be honest. Um, but if they can get picks, I think that they will, uh, they'll be players. Um, you know, if not... Well, you know what? Let me backtrack. I think there'll be players. It, it just depends on what kind of picks they can get. 
Um, Sean Monahan, who was playing in my eyes uh, really well before getting injured, lower body, which has to be a concern given his hip problems. Um, yeah. He he looked like he was a a guy you could definitely move before he got hurt. He's low cost, right? It's low cost. Mm-hmm. And he was he, a guy who barely played over the last couple of seasons, and he had 17 points in 25 games, and was you know and was playing 17 minutes a game. You could see him being a factor for a team in the playoffs. I mean, a Josh Anderson, he's got 11 goals. I mean, uh, I think you can see him a big guy with speed. He can be a crash and bang guy for a playoff team. But, you know, they, the way the veterans are playing at the moment, you're not going to get a lot for a guy. Like, you can't – are you going to get anything for Jonathan Drouin? No. Come playoff time. <laughs> Definitely right? not. Even though he you did know, score his guy first with... goal of the season last night. Oh, no, no, no. Don't make that mistake, Brian. That goal was given, that goal was given to Josh Anderson. <laughs> are you serious? Oh, yeah. That's, oh, that's awesome. That, I'm that, so glad to hear that. That makes me happy because I can't stand that empty suit that is Jonathan Drouin. So he's you wa- still you got no be- goals? You he's want him to have a no bagel. Goals. You think Jonathan <laughs> Drouin is going to go a whole season without having a bagel? Without, that would without be awesome. Could you imagine? Jeez. And you know what? Josh <laughs> Anderson scored that goal. That goal was almost over, completely over the line, and he tapped it in. <laughs> that was cruelty. That's, that was cruelty to a, cruelty to a teammate. That said, hey, maybe somebody looks at Josh Anderson's goal total at the uh, deadline and says, hey, this guy scores goals and, and, and brings him in. I mean, he's a big guy, right, who can fly. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a guy they can move. And I think you've got to move these guys. I think you have yeah. to. You know, um, Nick Suzuki will, will obviously provide enough, I think, enough leadership. I do think you have to keep one or two veterans. You know, maybe you keep Gallagher around. He's a, mm-hmm. you know. But you do need a little bit, but, you, you know, you also need a little bit of size. So it'll be interesting going forward who the Canadians deal. Uh, okay, one last thing months. One last thing about the Habs before we move on to uh, the Toronto Raptors. We'll get to them. Um, did you see the reaction of Martin St. Louis at the end of the game last night? Yeah, of course I did. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I tell you, Keith, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of the Habs, as you know, for obvious reasons. You can't be a Leaf fan and love the Habs. But Martin St. Louis, boy, I, I really, really enjoy him. He's something else. No, I know you're a, I know you're a big fan of his. Um, the interesting thing is, that, <laughs> you know, that was like, that was their, their getting into the playoffs moment, getting rid of that... <laughs> You know, getting rid of that uh, losing streak. He really yeah. showed emotion, and I'm glad he showed that emotion. I mean, I think the, his players, you know, especially the young players, uh, really uh, take their cues from him. You yep. know? No question. No they take question. their cues. And I know he was, yeah. not, he was not happy with the effort. Um, you know, obviously. Who's going to be happy with the effort on the seven-game losing streak? But, mm-hmm. I mean, that just shows you... You know, he's, you know, and he is, he's 100% emotionally invested in the Canadians. And it's great too, right? Obviously, he's in no uh, danger. Uh, this was the plan. It's actually a, a perfect situation for him as a young NHL coach, right? I mean, yep. you know, and he's close. We've talked about it. He's close enough to, to playing the game that he understands today's player. And, you know, he, yeah. 
I, I, I haven't seen many coaches in the NHL react to, uh, you know, a 5-4 win in January like that. But it was great to see. Yeah, no question about that. Little successes mean a lot. No success means a lot, too. And that's exactly what's happening as we turn our attention to the Toronto Raptors. Yeah, I mean, if, if uh, you had told me, Brian, that the Raptors would be what 16 and 23 at uh, yep. this point you know let's let's call it the halfway mark of the season um, mm-hmm. 16 and 23 at the halfway mark after you know the the success uh, you know so very successful and overachieving regular season they had last year with 48 wins I mean really I mean the Raptors are on pace for about you know what 33 wins this year I had anticipated yeah. the Raptors going north. I thought that they could get 50 um, with the lineup as, cons- as, as constructed. Um, you know, we, I, I knew the Raptors would have injuries. I knew it. But I pointed to you and said, hey, well, look at their record when their stars are injured, right? They have, they have a really good record when their stars are injured. Um, my problem has been with, and, and actually, I'm going to, I heard Sam Mitchell former Raptors coach say on the broad on a broadcast about a week ago that he believes the six foot eight Raptors experience experiment is a bit of a failure. Uh, he gave some reasons, but you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to give his reasons right now, but what do you think at this point in the season? A couple of things. And I actually did want to address that whole project six, nine, because a lot of people Analysts, pundits, loudmouth schnooks are criticizing the Raptors' uh, philosophy of having big players who can do everything on the court. Take a look around the league. Who are the most successful players? Who are the most wanted players? Who are arguably the best players in the league? It's those multi-positional, big wing type players, this Project 6-9. It's not a Raptors thing. It's a basketball thing. So to say that that is what is at the the foot of the Raptors' lack of success this season is Project 6-9 is a bit of an easy target because they're not having success. You can point to the most obvious thing. That being said, the lack of shooting on the Raptors' roster, which means roster construction, has been a problem. And let's look at this, Keith, because they brought in players who were specifically brought in because they can shoot the ball. Yep. Juancho Hernan Gomez, what's he known for? being able to shoot the basketball from the three-point line. Otto Porter, what's he yeah. known for? Being able to shoot the ball and be a really tough defensive player. Three and D. Three you know, and D. Three and D, right? Precious Achiu was supposed to be a factor from the three-point line because he had developed his shot. Fred Van Vliet is a 40% three-point shooter for his career. Those four guys alone, one not playing because of injury, second guy got knocked out because of injury, a third guy has been ineffective, and the fourth guy has lost his jump shot because of, oh, wait again, injury. You cannot have a lack of outside shooting from four of your principal outside shooters and expect anything to work offensively. So to blame Project 6-9 for the Raptors' 16-23 and record, easy target, but I think it's a little off base. The Raptors' lack of success this season is a bigger problem than the fact they have a lot of guys who are 6'8 or taller. If you ask me, yeah, you know what you know what I find interesting. Okay, and I I don't believe Sam Mitchell is a 
<laughs> is a joker or yokel, whatever. I, I no, I, he's I, he's definitely the opposite of that, as we both know, having I, I know dealt with he, Sam Mitchell on an extensive basis. Yeah, he fully understands the game, but I think yes. he's a little bit off base with the Project Six Nine. I think that I I've noticed the last ten games or so. I'll, I'm going to focus on Scotty Barnes. I've noticed. It seems like he's working out his game. Watching the game the other night, my son says to me, yeah, Scotty doesn't seem to be shooting threes as much. But if you've noticed, he's now going down. He's taking advantage of his mismatches. You put a small guy on him, he's taking him down into the post. You know, he's got that little half hook shot that he's developing, and which, which I think is fantastic for a 21-year-old player to be adding and developing to his game because I look around the league and I see other 21-year-old players not doing that, which tells me that this guy, we already knew he, he was picked mainly for his basketball brain and his, um, you know, like his ability to be a Swiss army knife. So mm -hmm. for me, I see improvement. Um, so, but the, the other part of the Project 6-9 that I've noticed is Sometimes when Fred Van Vliet is not on the floor, I see a little bit of indecision as to who takes the shots and when. Um, and sometimes, you know, hey, look, they're NBA players. Sometimes I love, okay, guys are going to shoot their way out of slumps. But players also have to, I, I, and that's the problem. When I see with, without Fred, is sometimes there's a lack of awareness, clock, point total and you know situation and guys look a little bit like they're going to get mine i noticed the other the other game friday night last game when they were battling they another big comeback right another big comeback against the yep. knicks but i noticed down this down the stretch and my son and i were both watching and we were like don't give the ball to pascal and then Pascal hit a big three. And that's, for me, that's a problem. This guy's supposed to be your leader. And down the stretch, it was Scotty, it was Fred hitting those big threes. And, and I didn't want Pascal Siakam to get the ball and rush a shot. Uh, I, I really didn't. And, and that's a problem to me, for me. And it's a problem for this Raptors team. If, you, if I wasn't trusting the guy who leads them in every single offensive category you know, except three-point percentage, if I wasn't trusting him to, to take the big shot. You know, okay. so that's a problem well, for me Keith, as a let me fan. Ask you, let me ask you a question, because I think we should dive into this. This is a, You're making an important point. Why do you have a lack of trust in uh, Pascal Siakam at that point in the game? So, you know what it was? I, and I totally get it. Hey, Pascal had had that huge game against the Knicks, uh, a couple weeks ago now, a couple Fridays ago, um, this last game against the Rap against the Knicks again at home, it wasn't falling for Pascal. I believe going into the fourth quarter, he had 11 points. It wasn't falling for Pascal. They kept going to him. Then they started going to other guys. And Scotty, particularly Gary Trent Jr. and Fred Van Vliet were delivering. And at one point... The Raps, I believe, were only down one point in the, within the last minute. And I wanted a, a good team 
You know, like if you, this was the Nets, the the New Jersey, uh, sorry, the New Jersey Nets. This was the Brooklyn Nets. You'd be going to Durant. You'd be going to Durant or Kyrie. I find with the Raptors, there's a little bit too much. Hey, just give them the ball. Whoever has the ball and is open. Uh, uh, Chris Boucher took a shot that I was like, why are you shooting a, a shot with 18 seconds in the shot clock? Pascal did the same thing, and you know, and the lead was opened up again. I want more awareness from these guys, and particularly from Pascal Siakam. If it's not going for me on this night, I need to be aware of what's going on in the larger game, and I need and and I need to defer. And I know that's tough, you know, in the NBA because superstars okay. rarely defer. Okay, we are going to one hundred percent disagree on this. One oh, of I know. Yeah, I, I, I already is- knew. <laughs> Yeah, I, I knew you knew. You could feel it coming, man. I'm going to tell you this, and this is what I think and what I've noticed. I think the Raptors' decision-making has been abysmal to this point in the season. And it's primarily because they have not allowed Pascal Siakam to take on a bigger role in the offense. He has a pretty big role right now, He, especially when they're not going well. He needs to have a bigger role. I think Pascal Siakam makes better decisions with the ball than 99% of the guys on his team. And that's not just about coming down and trying to go one-on-one or one-on-two and shooting the ball. He kicks the ball out better than anybody else on the team. It's the lack of shooting around him that has caused the Raptors most of their problems. Nick Nurse said it a couple of weeks ago, maybe even a month ago at this point. This guy is averaging, what, seven, eight assists a game? He should be averaging over 10. He hits guys for open shots all the time, and they're not putting it in. It's not Pascal Siakam's lack of efficiency that's hurting the Raptors. It's the lack of positive shooting around him that's creating issues for the Raptors. And yeah, quick shots sometimes happen, but when you're the main thrust of the offense, you're allowed to do that. You got to go down there and put the pressure on the defense every once in a while. Yeah, I might just pop off and and take a, a, a shot at 18 seconds, or I'm going to run through the offense and run through my options. But the Raptors need to make a stronger commitment, in my opinion, in my opinion, to Pascal Siakam being the serious focal point of the offense. He is the main usage player on the Raptors right now. They need to up that to have success. So I'm going to tell you, during those, you remember those two games where the Raptors came back against Milwaukee on Wednesday, against the Knicks on Mm -hmm. Friday, uh, mm-hmm. You know, we're talking early January here for if you're going to listen to this in the future. Siakam, 4 of 18, 0 of 2 from three-point land against the Bucks. Not a factor in their comeback. Okay, fair enough. That's, uh, that's the thing. Against the Knicks, 4 of 14, 1 of 4. One of four. So he shot 28% against New York, 22 against the Bucks. That's what I'm saying. I get what you're saying, but when you're in that last minute in your game, you shot three of, uh, sorry, you shot four of 13. I don't want you taking that 14th shot when yeah, it's but a one Keith, possession Keith, game. When you're a great player and Pascal Siakam is a great player, you can have a bad game. You can have sure. a bad three quarters. You can have a bad 40 minutes, but you're still a great player. So when it comes down to it, 
you have the ability to impact the game by the fact that you are a great player. There's a gravity that goes with being that, and you got to be able to utilize that. I don't think the Raptors are making enough usage of that. Force teams to react to Pascal Siakam, and then when he kicks the ball to you, hit the shots. A lot of the times, Pascal Siakam is bailing out his team in bad offensive sets, which is leading to him having to take rush shots. It's not like he's rushing the ball down there and shooting every time. Goodness, he only got up 18 shots against the Knicks, and he's their highest usage player. He should be shooting 20-plus times every game, and he's not. So the fact is, I think the Raptors are having a crisis of offensive confidence because they just don't know how to get proper sets on offense. And I got to look at Nick Nurse for that. Whatever they're running is not working, and they got to do a better job of utilizing the skills of Pascal Siakam because right now you're not getting great shooting from anybody on the team. And the only person that teams are really worried about is Pascal Siakam, which is why he's getting a lot tougher shots because teams know the other guys on the Raptors aren't getting the job done at this point. See, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to... I'm not going to disagree, but I, I, I believe over the last five, six games, Gary Trent Jr. has really shot the ball well, which is obviously what you need from him as a three-point, uh, you know, I won't call yeah, call him their three-point specialist. I think he's coming into, you know, he's coming into, he shot 50% against New York. Um, he shot only 25% against Milwaukee, but he shot 50 against Indiana, 71% against Memphis. Um, I, again, it's not that I don't understand what Pascal Siakam does for the Raptors. It's time and it's situation that I, that I sometimes question him. Uh, shooting, taking a shot in, with 18 seconds left on the shot clock when you're trailing a game by one, when you only shot 20%, 20, sorry, 28% in that game, for me, that's not a great play to make. It just isn't. I don't care if it's no, Pascal. I, 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 and I get that. But that, that to me is a little bit of isolation stuff. You're looking at things in isolation. Overall, and we're talking about the 16 and 23 season, the Raptors of fashion at this point. Yes. And I think a lot of that can be weighed in the fact that they're offensively, they haven't made a strong enough commitment to Siakam. However, all that being said, I don't know if you listen to this podcast that's hosted by uh, J.J. Reddick called The Old Man and the Three. I, I have listened to it in the past, yeah. Well, Fred Van Vliet was just on it this week, and he had a lot of things to say about the Raptors. And One thing about Fred Van Vliet, this guy is a blunt, honest speaker, and he didn't sugarcoat what he thinks is wrong with the team at this point and how things are going. Here's the thing, Keith. We talk about the style of the Raptors' play, how they, they were at one point a very committed defensive team. Seems like that's less so. And uh, the fact that they rely heavily on their starters. And so many questions now are being raised about the way the Raptors play, the style of play. It's too hard on their starters. It's too hard on their star players. What side of the equation do you fall in, in those questions? Um, you know what? I, I think they're too hard on their star players, the style of play, because I think they have to be, unfortunately. I don't think the way... The team is, you know, their guys, you know, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten guys aren't, aren't getting it done. Um, you mentioned, you know, they, well, and of course injury, um, but they've, they've 
they're near the bottom. I believe they're 28th or 29th in three-point shooting percentage. You know, you build a team to hit threes, and they can't hit threes. So, I mean, you got you have to play the guys who are hitting a high amount of minutes to get them to win. So, I that's I firmly fall upon. Hey, this is the situation they're in, and they're doing what they need to do to try and win. And you know, it's not working, right? That's 16 and 23. Right. Well, let's wrap up our Raptors and our podcast number 11 on the podcast list with this last thing about the Raptors. A lot of criticism being leveled right now at the the Raptors lineup. A lot of criticism being leveled right now on the Raptors on-court performance. All of that is about roster construction. Now, who's responsible for roster construction? Masai Ujiri and Bobby Webster, the president and the GM. So right now, at this point, are the Raptors, the head office of the Raptors, the guys who are in charge, are they the ones who are to blame for what situation the Raptors find themselves in right now? 16 and 23, out of the playoff picture, out of the playing game, and looking like a season that just might be a lost season. And we'll leave it right there for episode 11 of the Puck and Hoop podcast. And once again, thanks, Keith, for doing this with me. It's always a pleasure. And, and Happy New Year to you and your family. Thank you, Brian. Same to you and yours. All right. So that's episode 11. Episode 12 is coming up. Don't you dare miss it. If you're listening to this announcement, you've made it to the end of another TIYP Narrowcast. The opinions, views, and statements you've heard on this edition of Puck and Hoop are solely those of the host, guests, and their sources. The purpose of the Puck and Hoop Narrowcast is to entertain and inform our listeners, followers, and subscribers, and to help them form their own opinions. Thanks for listening.